And if they abandon them, they're free to remarry. Let me give you another example of what Erasmus had to say. Using the same paradigm, he proceeded to interpret the Scripture portions in Luke, Mark 10 and Luke 16, 18. He says these Scriptures, the ones, the clear ones, he says these Scriptures have to submit to Matthew 5 and 19. Never had it been quoted that way. Never had it been interpreted that way. Never in the history of the church. We show you the four conclusions that the early church writers had. But he says, no, 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 we have to make Matthew, make Luke and Mark and Romans and all these submit completely to Matthew 5 and 19. Then he says in Romans 7, 2, 3, where it says, they that know the law know that a woman is bound to her husband as long as they liveth. But if her husband be dead, she's loose from that law. But if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. He says, that's not speaking about marriage. That's not speaking about marriage. Hello? What's it speaking about? That had never been interpreted that way before. But because, now listen, the reformers are sitting there just waiting for every word to fall out of Erasmus's mouth because, after all, this is the man that gave him the word of God. This is the man that translated it into Greek and gave it to them. This is the one that was responsible for the King James Version to be able to even be translated. But he was a rationalist and he was a humanist, and he was saying that he's not speaking about marriage there in Romans chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. He says, Paul's not treating the subject of divorce here, but only giving advice to virgins and widows. What? They that know the law know the woman is bound to her husband as long as he liveth, but if he be dead, she's loose from that law, but she, and she can be married, but only in the Lord. Well, he's not talking about marriage. He's only talking to virgins. He's not talking about marriage and divorce there. He took these verses and twisted them. And by the way, when you read your commentaries today, you would think they were parody. Your commentators today say, oh, that's not talking about... I've had pastors say, oh, that Romans verse is not talking about marriage at all. Erasmus was also very double-minded. After such declarations, by the way, he was very careful to say, but if the church disagrees with me, I would submit. Now, you have to understand that even though he translated the Bible into the New Testament, Greek New Testament, his hope of salvation was still in the church. Still praying to Mary, still praying to the saints. His hope of salvation was in the church. And he knew he didn't want to get in trouble with the church. So when he said that, and many times he would write papers, and he would dedicate them to a pope, flattering that pope, in hopes that the pope would not get after him for it. But in this case, he said that uh, if the church disagrees with any of these things I've said, well, I submit to the church. Boy, that made Luther mad. He said, this guy is a gutless wonder. He can't make any decisions for himself, and he won't come out of the church. He stands inside the church and tries to be neutral on everything. By the way, when it all ended up and he was buried, the pope that was in power at that time went out and had every anathema that could be placed on a grave set over this man's grave. Later on, his bones were dug up and scattered, and the, the reformers turned against him too because they realized that he made all, said all these statements and uh, wouldn't follow up by coming out of the Roman church. It says, while he did not recant his interpretation, he expressed, expressed his loyalty to the church, and in the attacks made upon him, he intimated a willingness to submit his opinions to her final judgment. To such submission, the Protestant reformers would not agree. However, the reformers were indebted to Rasmus as the one who had laid the eggs which they were determined to hatch. They had no such allegiance to the Roman church. When they heard these reasonings, they said, boy, this sounds good to me. And so they began to pick up these things, and I'm going to show you 
how it spread. You know, today, uh, a lot of Christians say, well, it's legal to get an abortion. And so a lot of Christians today will go and get an abortion because it's legal. And this is exactly what happened when Erasmus said, these things are so. What the early church taught is monstrous. We can't believe that. This is what I believe the Scripture says. And the Reformers, now by the way, some people, and I'm not criticizing them, I'm just telling you a fact. Some people think, oh, here were these towers of light and wisdom that came out of the church. No. These people came out of 1,200 years of darkness. They saw a little glimmer of light and came out with it. I mean, if they all saw the same light and if they all saw the same revelation, why do we have over 34,000 movements and denominations and, and uh, fellowships and, and right now in the world that call themselves Christians? 34,000, over 34,000. They just saw one little bit of light and somebody else saw a little bit of light and they built little walls around those lights and so forth. These people came out in spiritual ignorance, totally committed to what they had learned all their lives from the Roman church. And they were trying to find some way to, to walk in some light. Well, the problem is they were fed wrong light here by Erasmus. And they began to develop that thing. Erasmus, and the scripture says, I mean, the historians say he, this egg, and by the way, I call this egg the Trojan horse that they put in the church, that Erasmus slipped into the church. The church was getting ready to break loose from the bonds of the dark ages in the Roman church. And uh, they received, gladly received an ex this Thing. You know, the Roman, the Trojan horse was what the Greeks built when they couldn't get into Troy. And uh, they finally gave up and they built this horse and left it there and sailed away. And uh, the Spartans thought for sure that this was a gift. So they went out and rolled it into the walls and closed the doors. And at night, the army, the Navy came back and landed again. And inside that horse were soldiers. And in the middle of the night, they came out of that horse and went out and unlocked the gates, and they went in and killed everybody in the city. They thought they'd received a gift, and it was loaded with poison, I mean, that which would destroy them. And this is exactly what happened to the Reformers. They took in this Trojan horse, this egg that, Noah, that, that uh, Erasmus had laid, and began to expand it. Let me show you how they expanded it. Martin Luther, by the way, in October 31st, 1517, when he nailed the 95 theses, on, at the, uh, on the door of the church in Wittenberg. In 1520, he made his final break with the Roman church, and Erasmus said that the New Testament was his wife. In 1525, he made a final break with Erasmus and called him a compromiser and a weak person because he would not come out. Martin Luther began to develop a theology for the grounds for divorce. He said if a woman is married to an impotent man, that's grounds for divorce. Or, in contrary wise, if a woman is married to an impotent man, that's grounds for divorce. I, I, I wish Abraham had known that. Hello? Ignorance of a former contracted marriage is grounds for divorce. Desertion between two and ten years, according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, the innocent party can remarry. Now, never had been taught before, but Erasmus fed this to them. And they began to hatch these new theologies. He said a wife's objection after being warned, a wife's objection to render the conjugal duty that is expected of her is grounds for divorce. Luther said concerning adultery, Luther said uh, only use Matthew and 1 Corinthians 7 texts and said in both cases the innocent party can remarry. That was not what the early church taught. They picked it up from Erasmus and began to multiply it. 
Let me show you again. Martin Luther sixth said, decisions about divorce is no longer the responsibility of the church. Decisions about divorce should be with the secular society, the secular government. They should go to the secular government and get married. The government should tell them who can be married and who cannot be married, when they can divorce and, and if they should divorce. The church should stay out of it completely. Martin Luther introduced that. He said the government has to demand obedience and it has to decide what is a rightful marriage. In Luther's discussion of divorce and remarriage, it was noticed that remarriage was justified by the fact that the adulterer was the same as dead in the eyes of God and in his relationship to the innocent party. Luther even felt that the adulterer deserved capital punishment. What was he saying? He's saying that God said in the Old Testament, if you commit adultery, you should be stoned. He said, well, if they're stoned, in God's sight, they're dead. You know, I, I never knew this, and I had a woman say to me one time, my husband's dead. I said, really? She said, I'm going to get remarried. I said, well, that's strange, because I just talked to him day before yesterday. She says, in my eyes and in God's eyes, he's dead, so I can remarry. That's rationalism. Humanistic rationalism. It was introduced by Desiderius Erasmus and Martin Luther. That means that they're dead and you can go ahead and remarry. Never had that ever been translated like that before. By the way, he did forget that in the New Testament, Jesus said in, in 1 Corinthians 6 chapter, uh, neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, and it goes on, none of these shall inherit God's kingdom. And such were, were some of you. You can repent. Such were some of you, but you're washed, you're cleansed, you're sanctified. Jesus and Paul never said that they're dead and you can remarry. He said, pray for their salvation that they can be saved. And then also, when Jesus had the woman that came to him with, that had committed adultery, they say, well, Jesus didn't have the authority. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, so he didn't have authority to stone her. Uh, so he just simply says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. But he says, now the Roman... Government or the Jews could have stoned her. I said, no, the Jewish authorities were right there. They're the ones that didn't throw a stone. But Martin Luther says, oh, see, no, they, they should have been stoned. In God's sight, they're dead. Now I'm going to give you some more of these hatched eggs. Melanchthon came along later after that, and the grounds for divorce that he devised is for cruelty, sorceries, deceitful behavior, and adultery. Those are grounds by which people can get married. Never heard of them, been heard of before. He said the marriage tie is severed by the adulterer himself and not by the innocent party who is free. Therefore, when the judge declares the innocent party free, he should expressly state that he or she may enter in another marriage with a clear conscience. The judge now, not, not, not Jesus, not Paul, not the early church fathers. The judge is living in that day should say, don't worry about it now. Your conscience is free. You can remarry. When that declaration was made, is made, the innocent party may marry, can marry at any time. Melanchthon does not, as does Luther, give an exegetical reason, any exegetical reasons why the innocent party may marry again. He only lays down the proposition if the innocent party was not allowed to marry again, it would be divorce only in name and not in reality. We're not going to give any scriptures on this, but this is reasonable. This is not monstrous. This is reasonable that people can live a happy life. Then there's Huldrych Zwingli. He said, when Christ granted divorce on account of adultery, he did not exclude other reasons for divorce and prescribed this only 
but mentions this as one among many. Oh, Jesus didn't say these other things, but Jesus meant all these other things too. You've got to understand that when Jesus said that one word adultery, he was actually saying that's just one of the possibility of many, many reasons why a person can get it. Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you something. This is exactly what pastors are parroting today. It did not mean that adultery was the sole reason for divorce. There are other evils which are even worse than adultery. As, for example, treachery, sorcery, and parasite or murder. He goes on to say, only the secular authorities could make a divorce valid since they alone could make the marriage legal. Therefore, God marries when the contracting parties are joined together in accordance with the ordinance and will of God and the rights of the nation and the civil code. Hence, they follow human, not divine tradition, who say that mutual agreement is the only thing necessary for marriage. The magistrate is the minister of God. Hence, those who abide by those laws, God marries them. Those who go against those laws or whatever those laws condemn, God does not sanction their marriage. Well, taking that reasoning, if man says that you can, that you can get abortions, then God agrees with that. There's nothing wrong with getting abortion. So as long as the government says it's okay for you to get divorced and remarried, it's okay because they're the ones that have the authority now, not God. Then another gentleman in 1557, Martin Bucer, the narratives of the evangelists should be taken together when they are treating the same subject or incident. Now get this. And the briefer narratives of other Gospels should be harmonized with the fuller accounts and interpreted with reference to other passages of Scripture <coughs> relating to the same matter. Thus, when the Lord in two places in Matthew most clearly allowed a concession about divorce, namely in the case of adultery, then the same should be added to the words and replies of the Lord as recorded in Mark and Luke. That's totally contrary to the laws of hermeneutics. You take the clear verses and interpret the unclear verses by the clear verses. They say, oh, no, no, no. You take these verses over here and you ignore the clear ones and make them come into line with the unclear verses. That's what was presented to, our, to the reformers. And Martin, I mean, Erasmus laid that egg and they started hatching it. I want to tell you something. This is a man-centered and not a God-centered theology. It's man's reasoning, and it's not the New Testament-based truth that, that we know in our Bibles today. And it's called the Matthew-Pauline exception theory that has permeated our churches and caused it today where we have more divorces and remarriages within the evangelical church than there are in the unsaved world. We are literally promoting and encouraging adultery today in our churches because of this false doctrine that was laid at the feet of our reformers and they picked it up. People say, this is what the church, early church fathers taught. No, it isn't. It's what the reformers picked up from this rationalistic humanist and it had never been taught before. This is what we call God wants me happy theology and not God wants me holy theology. And everyone has to make a decision. Whom will we believe? Will we, remember, will we believe Erasmus and the Reformers? Or Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life? Paul the Apostle who was called by Christ and received a full revelation? 
All the earliest church fathers who were faithful unto death for Jesus Christ. Who are we going to believe? And we have to make that decision. A.W. Pink, I, I love these statements he made. He says, what does walking by faith signify? It means our thoughts are formed, our actions are regulated, our lives are molded by the Holy Scriptures. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. It is from the Word of truth, that, and that alone, that we can learn what God's relation to this world. What, what is God's relation to this world? The Word of God. The fundamental principle... Oh, what did I do? I know what I did. I turned two pages. There, I'm sorry. I got ahead of you. The trend of modern theology, if theology it can be called, is ever toward the deification of the creature rather than the glorification of the Creator. And the leaven of present-day rationalism is rapidly permeating the whole of Christianity. Isn't that good? It's exactly what's happening. Now, the next statement I started to read to you. What does walking by faith signify? It means our thoughts are formed, our actions regulated, our lives molded by the Holy Scriptures. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It is from the Word of truth, and that alone, that we can learn what is God's relation to this world. Now, I did it again. Sorry about that. I'm going to have to watch that screen a little bit. But a fundamental principle must be applied to every problem. Instead of beginning with man and his world and working back to God, we must begin with God and work down to man. Erasmus started with man and worked down to God and changed God's theology and his teachings and everything else. And that's why we're in the mess we're in today. Now we'll go on. This is a foundational principle. Until we completely comprehend this fact and apply it to every aspect of our lives and calling, we'll be continuously confused by man's reasonings. Those caught up in an adulterous lifestyle will continue to explain away the permanence and divine origin of marriage while conjuring up excuses for divorce and subsequent relationships. Having been an ordained minister, pastor for, since 1957, I fully realize controversial subjects always add stress to an already difficult situation for those in leadership. Pastors tend to avoid additional stress as much as possible. This is why we pastors will have to have our minds renewed in this area of truth and throughout all the false information we've received in our theological training and Christian reading before we can even consider teaching this truth. We won't be willing to pay the price it will cost us unless or until the Holy Spirit shows us that this is truth. Until we get it down into our soul like a fire, until we're willing to pay any price, and there will be a price to pay. If we are called to preach the whole counsel of God, we have no other option but must be obedient to our calling and to our chief shepherd. We must remember whom we serve and know if we will preach this truth uncompromisingly, the Lord will honor and provide for us. As believers, it is imperative to remember Jesus Christ has called His church and its leaders to set a standard, not gain a following. If in setting that standard the church does gain a following, all the better. If, however, the church fails to set the standard and then gains a following, it will be to her detriment. Martin Luther, or excuse me, yes, Martin Luther, when speaking of Erasmus, after Erasmus had died, he said he, he did so, in other words, he died without light 
and without the cross. Now, this is the same man that said that this, this Greek New Testament translation was his wife. He highly regarded this man until he found out what his real nature and what his real disposition was. And after he died, he said, he died so without light and without the cross. I curse Erasmus and all who think contrary to the word of God. Erasmus is worthy of great hatred. I warn you to regard him as God's enemy. He inflamed the baser passions of young boys and regarded Christ as Kloss Her or the court fool. After the Council of Trent, Erasmus was declared a rationalist and a heretic and was cursed and anathematized by the Roman church. He lost it with everybody. Nobody liked him when he died. All right, it's, uh, in, have I been speaking for an hour and a half? Oh my. Well, we're going to take a break and then we're going to get into definitions. Jason turns up my mic and <laughs> so thankful for the way the body ministers to each other. Dear brother just brought me some pineapple juice from my throat and that helps. Another brother brought me a, you know, I said, I went back there and gave you that, what Martin Luther said that, I mean, what uh, Heth and Winter said that there's only one fourth century uh, church father that Ambrose asked her, remember mentioning him? Brother uh, Stephen has done some additional study and found out that Embryosiaster is a name given by Erasmus to an anonymous 4th century commentator on the epistle of St. Paul whose work often circulated under the name Ambrose, though also under the names of Augustine and Hilarius. Uh, and he gives the, the, Reformation, I mean, the reference to it. And uh, Souter's attribution of a set of Westonians on the Old and New Testaments to the same author have been universally accepted for other minor works doubtfully attributed to Embryosiaster. Despite much speculation, Embryosiaster remains unidentified for a list of some of the proposed candidates. Uh, see, his principal works can be dated by in, internal evidence to the pontificate of Damascus. He probably lived in Rome, but some evidence points to periods of residence. They, they, these are some of the historical arguments. But down at the bottom, they found out that his name was attached to an idea, not necessarily a, even a real person. And uh, the classical early church archives were not able to even find this person. They think that Embryosiaster was a fictitious person that Erasmus pulled out and used to confirm one of his arguments. He wasn't even a historic person at all. The church fathers... Uh, Agreed, except Erasmus's fictional character called Embryosiaster. Uh, in other words, we said, except this man. In reality, if this man was fictitious, all of them said it. There wasn't even an Embryosiaster in the fourth century. So we can say unanimously, all the church fathers that lived, not the fictitious ones, all of them stated that marriage was for life. So God is putting truth out. Line upon line, precept upon precept to strengthen the arguments. Now, we want to get into some definitions. I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can here. I hope you can hear in uh, shorthand. Uh, we want to talk about definitions. First of all, when we speak in the Bible, now it's very, under, very important that you understand this because 
Some people call it adultery when it's fornication, and we want you to notice that, know the difference. Adultery in the Greek is moikia, and in the noun form, moikio in the verbal form. Uh, it means sex outside the marriage relationship, sexual unfaithfulness of a husband and or a wife. For a married person to look upon any other person other than a marriage partner with lust in their heart, according to Matthew 5:28. You know, one brother came up to me and said, uh, had you thought about this? And I, I thought it was a good insight. He says, you know, all the way through Matthew 5, Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say, and if you hate someone, he raised the bar. And, uh, and he goes on to the different subject, and he raises the bar. He says, why is it, if he's raising the bar, why did he come to marriage and drop the bar? It's totally inconsistent. And every one of them, he's raising the bar and raising the bar. But these new theologians tell us, oh, he dropped the bar concerning marriage. So that's totally, hermeneutically, it's not even sound. So uh, that's another thing that you need to understand and take along with you. Fornication. Greek word is pornea. That's what's used in Matthew 5 and 19. It means voluntary sexual intercourse between unmarried persons. Sexual intercourse between a spouse and an unmarried person. <clears throat> it is reported, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not is as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. There are those who believe that the, the, uh, it was his father, but his father had remarried and he had a relationship with this other woman. Excuse me. Now, some people say, well, pornea means any kind of sexual activity. Now, let me tell you, there, is, there are occasions in the New Testament where it does mean that, where it says flee fornication. That is a general term. Let me give you a good example. I can say to you for a broad term, I can say there's a basket of fruit. Now, is that right? That is a basket of fruit. Or I can say there are some apples and oranges and strawberries and bananas and grapes in that basket. Now, is that correct also? Okay. In the Bible, there is the broad use, flee fornication. In the Bible, there are very narrow uses also. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves. Now, fornication there does not, in that case does not mean all kinds of impurity. It's very specific. When the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, we be not born of fornication, they were not saying we be not born of, of bestiality, and we be not born of adultery. They were saying to you, we know where you came from. We remember what happened to your mother Mary. That was very specific. You have specific uses here, and in Matthew, Jesus was using a very specific, narrow use of that word when he said, except it be for fornication. He wasn't saying like our new reverse vision say, for unchastity, for sexual impurity, for marital unfaithfulness or anything. That wasn't what he's saying at all. He's saying the only time you can get a divorce is during the time of betrothal. And he used the word pornea, which, as I said, was understood completely by the disciples. That's why they said, whew, boy, it's better never to get married. So I just wanted to bring those definitions out to you so you know the clear difference. And then we want to talk about repentance, one of the most misused and misunderstood words in the New Testament today. I was in a seminar one time, and the man got up and said that he gave an illustration of a businessman who had succeeded and failed and succeeded and failed. And he finally said, what are you dealing with? What's causing you to fail all the time? He said, well, when I was 18 years of age, I got married to a girl, and we were married for about six months, and I got divorced. And and uh, he said, eight or ten years later, I married again, and, and I just have that guilt inside of me. He said, well, the Bible says very clearly, if you, uh, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses it shall have mercy. He said, you need to confess that to God and, and get rid of it. 
He said he did, and today he's successful in business. I went up to the man afterwards. I said, brother, you just inoculated that man to what the Bible says in truth. He said, what do you mean? I said, you, you quoted on the platform, whoso, um, whoso covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses it shall have mercy. And that isn't what the Bible says. That says, whosoever confesses and forsakes it, forsakes it shall have mercy. You inoculated him. Now he doesn't feel guilty. He's succeeding in business and feels he's right in the center of God's will, but he never had to repent. And I want you to understand that that scripture verse means exactly what it says. In the Old Testament, the word repentance, the Hebrew word is teshuba or shub or azaz. Azab, there's three different words. And it actually means a radical change in one's views of God and sin. It implies a conscious moral separation and decision to forsake sin and to have fellowship with God. It is a total or complete turning away from past sins. Now I can give you some examples of that in 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, turn from their wicked way, that's that word shub, uh, then will I hear their prayers and will heal their land and forgive their sins and heal their land. So that's the word, and it means you're going in this direction, you turn around 180 degrees in the other direction. It does not mean, I'm sorry, God, but I'm going to keep on doing it. I said to a fellow one time, if somebody slapped you in the face and said, I'm sorry, please forgive me, you'd forgive them, and they slapped you again. After about five or six times, you'd begin to question their sincerity about being sorry, wouldn't you? And I said, but there's people that think God's dumber than we are. We can just keep on doing what we're doing. God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But he says there needs to be repentance. Then Proverbs 28, 13, he that, that's the one I just quoted, he that covereth his sins. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 is the word Azab. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake Azab, forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Sheba unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now if we were to reverse that, we'd say if you don't turn around, if you don't forsake it, then you're not forgiven. Isn't that just as true? God said, if you do turn around, if you do forsake it, I'll forgive you and bless you. Now, the New Testament response, or a word for repentance, there's a couple of them here. Metanoia is the Greek word, which means to have another mind, to change the opinion or purpose with regard to sin. And uh, I could give you a lot of verses here, and I won't try to uh, uh, quote all of them or have you turned all of them. But it, in Acts 2, 37, 38, where Peter was on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. He didn't say believe. He said, repent. And I keep telling you today what we're in our churches doing. We've got a bunch of believers. Someone says our churches are full of empty people, people who have never known what it is to really genuinely repent of their sins. Back in the 1960s, the Southern Baptist Convention did a survey of their own denomination and questioned people concerning their relationship to Jesus Christ. And they came back and said that they found 60%, at least 60% of the Southern Baptists had never had a genuine born-again experience. He said, they'll take their coats off and fight for the Southern Baptist Church, and they'll, they'll just do anything they have. They'll support it, they'll pay for it, and everything else. But they never had a genuine born-again experience. And somebody came up and accosted Dr. Lee afterwards and said, you folks were exaggerating in this situation. He said, brother, he said it was closer to 70%. Now think about it. Here's a denomination who has congregational votes. If 60% of them aren't saved, how do you ever get a spiritual vote? Hello? 
But you see, our churches are filled with people who have had some kind of an experience. I had a man in, in a church where we had revival meetings one time at 65 years of age, came forward and afterwards stood up and he said, I want you to know, when I was a young man, a teenager, I came with five other boys to church, to a church that had revival meetings. And when they gave the altar call, I was just standing there, didn't have any idea at all I wanted to do anything about it. And my friend next to me grabbed me by the hand and dragged me down the aisle with him. And I got down there and I was embarrassed, so I got down. And somebody came along with me, and one was saying, hang on, the other said, let loose, and uh, you know, all this stuff. And, and finally, when he got all done, I was just there saying, I hope this thing gets over with. And when he stood up, he said, now you need to be baptized. And they said, yeah, let's all get baptized tonight. So I didn't want to say anything, so I got baptized. He said, in no time they had me teaching a Sunday school class. Later on, I became an officer in the church. I became treasurer of the church. He said, I worked with the denominational leadership. He said, but tonight I want you to know for the first time in my life I've come forward, I've repented of my past, I've asked Jesus to become Lord of my life, and tonight I know I'm saved. Our churches are filled with people that go have that same experience that I just described to you, going on and on and on. Matthew 4, 17 and Matthew 9, 13 are more verses where, well, I'm going to have to read something to you so you see what I'm talking about here concerning New Testament repentance. This is not something we conjured up. It's very essential that we understand that the Bible de demands repentance. Matthew 4, 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse chapter 9 and verse 13. <clears throat> but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Bible is absolutely full. Jesus preached repentance. Mark 6. What's so important about this? You can't have a genuine salvation experience without genuine repentance. That's what's important. Mark 6, 12. And they went out. Now the disciples. Jesus preached repentance. Mark the disciples here now. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. The disciples, when they went forth, they preached repentance. Luke 15, 7 is Jesus again. I've actually had people tell me that Christians don't have to repent. Luke 15, 7. And I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. Acts 3, 19. We'll go back to the disciples again. Acts 3, 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In other words, if you don't repent, there won't come times of refreshing. Repentance is absolutely required. Acts 17, 30. By the way, all of this is in the longest chapter in my book. Acts 17, 30. Yes. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, speaking about the Old Testament, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Another translation that says, such former ages of ignorance, God, it is true, ignored and allowed to pass unnoticed, but now He charges all people everywhere to repent. That is, to change their minds for the better and to heartily to renounce their ways with abhorrence for their past sins. 
That's New Testament doctrine. 2021. Testifying both to Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very important for us to see the Paul the Apostle, Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle, all the other disciples preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you hear in most churches today? Just come and believe. Just try Jesus. Just come and believe. Only believe. Only believe. All, all things are possible. Only believe. No. If we're going to have a genuine salvation experience, we have to repent. The next word is epistropho in the Greek. Uh, and it describes the complete, the, uh, the complete act and result of genuine repentance. What happens when somebody truly turns around? It means to turn around 180 degrees. It's not grief, but a change of mind that causes a man to turn from his evil ways, to abhor and hate his past sins, and to abandon them. And uh, I won't, I'm going to show you the verse there, and you can write it down if you'd like to, but uh, we, I want to move on quickly here. Repentance... <clears throat> True repentance is that change of a sinner's mind which leads him to turn from his evil ways and live. And you know, if we have sinned against God in our marriage relationship, if we want healing and we want restoration, we have to come to that place where we totally repent of our failures and shortcomings in the past and believe that God's going to forgive us and deliver us. It's the, it means the intellect must function. It's not just an emotional thing. The emotions must be aroused and the will must act. I like what Linsky had to say about it. Repentance without amendment is pretense. Repentance is only a condition of salvation it is, and not its meritorious ground. It is psychologically impossible to commit oneself for forgiveness for and deliverance from sin without renouncing and turning away from all that is contrary to God. He goes on to say, excuse me, did it again. Sorry about that. As eternal life is unattainable without faith, faith is unattainable without repentance. Repentance is the negative side of faith, and faith is the positive side of repentance. The two are inseparable for a genuine Christian experience. As I said, some people say today that Christians don't have to repent. And I said, you know, I wish Jesus had known that. I, I feel so badly because he really messed up. He went back to that church of Ephesus in Revelation and said, remember where you came from, repent and return. Christians need to repent. And in most of our churches today, we're looking for blessings instead of burial and dying to ourselves and yielding ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to give you the titles that have been given to this teaching, just a few of them. Some of them I wouldn't be able to repeat. But uh, titles given to the first of all, condemnation. And this is condemnation. And I, I had a man in, in Sarasota, in, yes, when I was over in uh, Sarasota. Well, no, not Sarasota, that's Beulah land. Uh, uh, Tampa, St. Petersburg. I was on television over in St. Petersburg. And afterwards, I came off behind the camera, and a man walked up to me. My son was there. He was still alive, and my son was there. He wasn't feeling very well. But this man walked up and said, Brother, what you're preaching is condemnation. And my son stood and said, Sir, that's impossible. He said, What do you mean it's impossible? He said, Well, the Bible says, and this is condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Neither cometh the light, lest their deeds be reproved. And he said, My father's preaching light, and because you don't like it, and you're turning away from it, you're calling my father's preaching condemnation. But it isn't condemnation, it's light, and you don't want it. I thought, I don't have to add to that. That's good enough. That'll work. Work for me. Condemnation. Oh, it's legalism also. 
Now, legalism means that you are trying to earn your salvation by good works or trying to live the Christian life in our own energy. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us. There's nothing you and I can do to earn our salvation. It is a gift of God. But then there's the evidence of the salvation. There's evidence that we have been redeemed. When Jesus dealt with Nicodemus and took him, he went to his home and had lunch. Afterwards, Nicodemus says, if I've stolen from him, I'll give it back fourfold. And Jesus said, truly salvation has come to this house today. Is he saying because he's going to give all that money back, that's going to save him? No, he's saying that's the evidence that he has been saved. His heart is changed. His life is different. Jesus, or Paul said, if you want to see what a true Christian is, look at someone, and if you see that all things have changed, old things have passed away, and behold, everything about them is brand new. That's a genuine Christian. He wasn't saying old things pass away and you can drag all your sins into Jesus with you and live with them. No, he's saying that those things are gone. You've died to those things. Now you've come alive in Jesus Christ, and you're going to walk in righteousness. Then they say, we, they talk about law versus grace. Well, what is, what is grace not? Let me say that first. God's <clears throat> grace is not the indulgence, God's indulgence of letting us do what we want. In fact, Paul said in Romans, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We died the old nature is dead. We're supposed to rise up and walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ. And it, some people say that, it, that it's the removal of penalties for breaking God's law. No. That's not what, what grace, I mean, that grace is not the removal of penalties for breaking God's law. Thirdly, the replacement of God's law. Great God, now, by the way, the, the ten, Jesus said not one jot or one tittle of the law has gone away. It's still with us today. If you and I commit adultery, if you and I uh, murder, if you and I hate, and if we put somebody before God to idolatry, those laws are still there and they judge us. They, may, they give us a level to show us what God considers to be sin. If we didn't have that measuring stick, we'd say, what is sin? So he's put it there. And grace, you see, I don't go around saying, I don't want to murder today. I don't want to murder today. I don't want to murder today. I have the love of God in my life. And those things have no room in my life anymore. Why? Because I've been redeemed by the grace of God, and He's given me a new heart and a new mind concerning these things. Now let me tell you what grace is. Grace is the desire and power to fulfill the principles behind God, the law. Uh, scripture says, do we make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. See, the world should be able to look at the church and say, that's what it is to live according to God's laws. That's what it's like to live in a way that's pleasing to God. But today they're saying, if that's Christianity, inoculate me. I don't want to get that disease. Some Christians go around looking like they've been sucking on alum and almost step on their lower lip. Oh, woe is me. And they wonder why the, church, why the world isn't flocking to the church doors. Well, before I got saved, I was smoking two and a half packs of cigarettes a day, plus cigars and pipes, and I couldn't quit. My fingers were stained, my teeth were stained, I was a nervous wreck, couldn't go hunting anymore, my nerves were so bad, and the doctor said I'd be dead in a few years. And that night, when I went to the altar, I said, Lord, I can't quit smoking, I've tried and tried and tried, I just can't do it, Lord Jesus, I've got to give it to you. What will you do for me, Lord? I just, I, I give it to you, I don't want it in my life anymore. I stood up and turned around, and I said, my sister, here, you can have these, I won't need them anymore. What happened? The grace of God. 
enabled me to do God's will. I couldn't do it in myself, but He enabled me to be able to do it. It is an enabling force. Did it again. It is an enabling force from God giving all men the desire and the power to do His will. I had, I was in a a church up in Pennsylvania one time and spoke and afterwards somebody said, that's a bishop over there. I said, really? He said, yes. I saw one over and I said, well, brother, how was it tonight? Did you enjoy it? Well, he said, I think you left the grace of God out. I said, really? I didn't mean to do that. I said, why do you think that? Well, he said, there's got to be grace in this situation for these people. I said, well, I, I agree. But I said, uh, are you talking about New Testament grace? Yes. I said, well, let's see, let's see what the Bible says about New Testament grace. I said, well, look at me with, look with me at uh, Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 through 15. And I'll find it here in a moment. Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation. I said, is that the grace you're talking about? The kind that brings salvation? Yeah. Yeah, I said, we don't want a kind of grace that, that doesn't bring salvation. No. I said, okay, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. I said, now this is the grace of God that bringeth salvation. This is what it teaches us. This is not legalism. This is not bondage. This is not judgmentalism. This is the grace of God that bringeth salvation. What does it teach us? Teaching us, denying ungodliness. What did I tell you ungodliness was? Being unlike God. God has given a bill of divorcement to Israel, and he's not looking for another wife. He's waiting for his bride to come back, waiting for all the blemishes and spots to be gone and be restored to him. And we're to deny ungodliness. If we divorce our partner and marry someone else, that's ungodliness, and we move over to the next thing here. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from, not in, from all iniquity and to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise them. I said, brother, I didn't leave out grace tonight. I explained what grace is all about. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust and walking soberly, righteously and justly in this present world. I don't know that I moved him, but I, that's not my job. I just have to declare what the Word says. Then I, I have a precious pastor in my church here. Uh, I, I don't know that I told you in this presentation, but I went to the church door, and he said, I know you, and I said, you want me to stay? I want me to leave, and you know. And he said, I've read your book, and I agree with it. I said, you're a, you're a, wild, you're a rare duck. And uh, so I've been there. But he called me one time and said, can we have lunch? I said, sure. Went out for luncheon. He said, uh, Brother Joe, how can I preach this message with, with compassion? You know, there are so many people that are so concerned of what people think when you say something. And, I, you know, God had to cure me of that. I said, what does God think about it? I'm more concerned about what God feels than I am about what people feel when you speak the truth. It's important that we please God. And I said, well, give me your definition of compassion. He said, well, I, I really, really feel badly about some of these poor people that are caught up in this thing and they, they, they can't get out of it. They didn't want the divorce and their partners left them and they're just left and they're devastated. And then I said, Pastor, that's sympathy. That is not compassion. And he said, what's compassion? I said, well, turn to Second Chronicles, the 36th chapter, and let's see if we can find out what compassion is. 
2 Chronicles chapter 36, it talks about, in verse 11, King Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God that he, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. What Nebuchadnezzar did was had King Zedekiah come in before him with Jeremiah the prophet there and say, I want you to swear to me now before God that you'll serve me and I'll leave you in, the, in Israel here and you can continue to rule the people. He says, I swear. He says, swear before God. I swear before God. And as soon as he left and went back to, to uh, Babylon, Zedekiah changed his mind and refused to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. And moreover, not only did he not do it, but verse 14, moreover, all of the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after the abomination of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had allowed in, hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending them because he had, what? He had compassion on them. What did he do? He sent his prophets to them. What did the prophets do? Repent. Repent or God's going to judge you. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion upon young men or maiden, old men, uh, on, or him that stooped for age, he gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, and all that he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and they break down the walls of Jerusalem, and burned all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. What happened there? God had compassion on them and sent his prophets to warn them, repent. And when they didn't do that, he had no more compassion on them. I said, Pastor, when you and I declare what the word of God says about marriage and divorce, that's, we're expressing the compassion of God. Oh, but I don't want to hurt them. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a fire. It's a hammer, the word of God says. And unless they hear the truth so that God can convict them and they can come to the place of repentance, then we're allowing them, we are, we're encouraging them to go right on in their wicked ways. We have to declare the word of God whether it's popular or not. Again, I ask you, how many of the true prophets in the Old Testament were, were honored? What did Jesus say? You stoned all of them and you burned them and you killed them and everything in the Old Testament. And what did they do to him because he came and spoke the truth? And he said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Don't think it's strange if the world hates you. Don't think it's strange if they say all manner of evil against you. Get used to it. Well, yes, but Brother Webb, I don't have any friends and I don't... You know, it's one thing to enjoy the power of his resurrection, but how about the fellowship of his suffering? He was lonely too. He was rejected too. He was misunderstood too. And until you and I come to the place where I don't care what anyone says, I know what the Word of God says, and I'll have compassion on people, and I'll declare what the Word of God says. My conclusion. Marriage is for life. 
A single person should never consider marrying a divorcee. Never. Never. I know pastors here in this area recently, godly men, who when they lost their wives married divorced women. I thought, but they're byproducts of what they've been taught. And nobody's telling them the truth. A separated person should realize that in God's sight there is no divorce. You will be one flesh with that partner until the day you or, the other, or your partner dies. Whether you live with them or live with someone else, in God's eyes you'll still be one. A, divorce, a divorcee in man's eyes should either return to their first partner or remain single for life. And God says you have that choice. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. Live separately or be reconciled. A divorced person who has, never, who has married another person in man's eyes should know it is not hopeless. A divorced person who has married another person in man's eyes should know it's not hopeless. He can repent. He can promise God. He'll do all that He shows them to do when He shows them. And honestly, let Him lead you. And don't listen to those who would try to quiet God's conviction in your heart. I know people come to me and want me to tell them what I think, and they'll go to someone else and tell them what they think, and I say, I won't tell you what I think. You go read my book. I've spent years writing that. Why should I spend hours with you? The real question is, are you willing to repent? What does repentance really mean? One pastor said, I got so tired in my large church of people coming and just sucking the life out of me, telling me all the details of what they were doing wrong and the sin they were in. He says, you know, God, I've got to have an answer here. And God, he thought God gave him the answer. He said, I say to them, what did God convict you of? Well, I did thus and such. He says, okay, admit it and quit. That's repentance. Admit it and quit it. That's not difficult. But if you only knew the thoughts that are in my mind, admit it and quit it. I know a fellow who's yelling at his wife and screaming at his wife all the time. And I said, you ever go down the street slapping yourself inside of the face? I said, do you ever go down the street slapping other people in the face? He said, no. I said, why? I said, that's unacceptable conduct, isn't it? I said, when you scream at your wife, you've got to ask God to put in your heart, that's unacceptable conduct. I honor my wife because God says so. And if I'm not willing to do it, I've got to admit it and quit it. I've got to be right with God. This is the conclusion of the messages titled, Till Death Do Us Part. The Marriage and Divorce Seminar.